gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. So, uh, just so you know, because I am, I am, I am nothing if not a river to my listeners. To paraphrase Anthony Quinn in Lawrence of Arabia, an apt movie reference, given that today's guest is Ken Pollock, one of my favorite all-around polymathic foreign policy guys and Middle East experts. Um, but just so you know, I am recording this. Uh, after we had the conversation, because I screwed up, I missed that this was in my calendar because there were so many things in my calendar. It got bumped below where I could see. And I'm literally leaving the funeral home with my mom's death certificates and et cetera. Uh, and I get this 10 minute warning from my phone saying, uh, Ken Pollock podcast. And I panicked, texted guy and said, expletive deleted am I doing this thing with Ken Pollock in 10 minutes? And the guy said, yes. And I said, Oh, we've got to delay it. So we delayed it, uh, push it back a half hour, but Ken had a very hard out. He had to be somewhere by three. So it's a shorter conversation than we would normally have. Um, I was a little more frazzled than I would like to think I would normally be, but maybe it focused the mind. Who knows? Um, but I think it was a great conversation. Um, Ken, I don't know what his actual title is at, at AI. He's, he's the, knows stuff about Iran guy um, and other things. Um, and uh, so we covered what's going on with Iran. We covered what's going on with uh, Saudi Arabia and a little bit about how Ukraine plays into all of that. Oh, also, I need to point out uh, there is a grand tradition um, on this podcast that when, uh, much like in the spirit of the dispatch itself, we try to zig when everyone else is zagging. Um, there's going to be no end of post-election punditry, um, today, yesterday, tomorrow, whatever, this week. And we're going to have plenty of it at the dispatch. Uh, but I'm sure if you have a politics feed in your podcast, you got plenty of options for that. I wanted to go a different way. Um, and so this week we did, uh, Shadi Amid, and now we're doing, uh, Ken Pollock talking about things other than the midterms. So um, I will have my thoughts on the midterms and the solo pod at the end of the week. Um, but we figured that there are at least some people out there who maybe just aren't as interested as everybody thinks you're supposed to be about the midterms. So there you have it. So let's get the conversation started. So Ken, we're continuing a long tradition here at the, at the remnant of counter-programming. You're one of my go-to guys on all things Middle East, particularly Iran. Why don't we just sort of do a table setting and what the hell's going on? Obviously, we've got the makings of a revolution in Iran. Uh, we've known this for a long time. The Iranian populace has been trying to get rid of this government for at least 20 and arguably 25 years, going all the way back to 1997. What we've seen, though, is in recent years, the protests against the regime have been getting larger. They are deepening uh, into the population itself. So groups that we hadn't seen come out and protest are now protesting. These are much more problematic for the regime. And in particular, what we're seeing this time around is the regime is once again resorting to force. And this time, the protesters are not dispersing the way that they have in the past. So this is a very big set of problems for the regime. That said, you know, we have to be very careful about this kind of thing. 
the regime has faced this over and over and over again. They've gotten very good at crushing these public protests, no matter how big they are. And, you know, one of the things that we know from the history of revolutions is that they only succeed when the government loses either the will or the capability to use force. And so far, there's just no sign that this that this regime has lost either that will or that capability to do so. So we can all be hopeful and we can all recognize that what is happening in Iran is bigger. It is worse for the regime. Uh, it is uh, more profound in every way than any protest we've seen in Iran. But it's not yet clear that this is going to achieve what the Iranian people so clearly want. Let's imagine that you have some experience working for a three-letter agency somewhere, <laughs> and uh, you, uh, uh, not HUD, um, and um, you're looking for a regime element, whether it's a faction of the army, security, whatever. Um, is there any is there any part of the the power apparatus that looks like it might defect? to the side of the protesters? Because that's one of those classic, you know, signs of, of regime collapse is when bits and pieces start to break off. Yeah, so this is uh, one of those great issues that uh, back when I was with that uh, organization, sometimes referred to as Christians in Action, we were endlessly <laughs> asking, right, is is there a way, is there a part of this regime that might be willing to turn against it, in particular a part that actually could have some impact if it did so? And, you know, the most obvious group out there was the old Iranian army, the Shah's army, what's called the Artesh, different from the Revolutionary Guard. You know, so Iran has these two competing militaries, the Revolutionary Guard, the Artesh. And people were looking at the Artesh for years, trying to figure out if there was a way to move them. But, you know, the problem that we found there was that the Artesh was was kind of, you know, so belittled by the regime, so treated like, a, you know, a redheaded stepchild by the regime that, uh, you know, as any kind of uh, psychotherapist would probably tell you, all they wanted was the parents' love and attention. Right. And so mm -hmm. rather than turning against the regime, what we saw was the Artesh working harder and harder and harder to prove its loyalty to the regime. And, you know, this is what we've seen over the years is that uh, they are endlessly trying to prove to the regime that they're not disloyal, that they are every bit as loyal as the Revolutionary Guard, perhaps even more so. And so over the years, as people have tried to figure out how do you get the Artesh, how do you get the armed forces themselves to move against the regime? It just, it's very, very difficult to imagine how to do that. Uh, the truth is that I think that as various groups, including allies of the United States in the Middle East, have been looking at Iran and how to create problems for the regime, you know, increasingly they've not focused on the Artesh or other arms of the Iranian regime itself. Instead, they've gone looking to minorities inside of Iran ethnic groups that really don't like the fact that Iran is run largely by the majority Persians, who are a very narrow majority in Iran, but still a majority, and very much monopolize all of Iran's power, wealth, etc. These groups, I think, have, have proven to be much more fertile ground for those looking to create problems for the regime. So uh, that brings up the, 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 the first woman to be killed by the morality police. Uh, forgive me for um, spacing her name. Masa Amini. That's right. She, 
She was Kurdish, right? Correct. Exactly. So, you know, and, and I've seen reports about protests from other ethnic groups and, and all that. How much, the fact that it, it spread so quickly about a Kurdish Iranian was very interesting to me. Um, so clearly there's a national Iranian identity that is not entirely ethnic, but at the same time, it seems like the most intense protests, the ethnicity, the ethnicity issue is a multiplier of it. Can you just give me a bit like a sort of a demographic picture of, of how this works and how much, how much of a national Iranian identity identity is there and how does it play into all of this? So there certainly is an Iranian national identity, although inevitably it is stronger among some groups than others. Um, Iran is 54% Persian. The rest of the country are a whole grab bag of different ethnic groups. Uh, it's about 80% Shia Muslim, uh, which leaves, again, about 20% who are mostly Sunni Muslims. And as you can imagine, there are different groups within that, uh, that melange who feel differently about the regime. So, for instance, you've got uh, a number of different Sunni groups, particularly the Arabs, particularly the Baluch in the East, particularly the, among the Kurds, who don't particularly like the rabid Shiism of this regime, right? Let's never lose sight of the fact that this is a theocracy. This was a regime that was built in Ayatollah Khomeini's image. And even though they like to believe that their ideology is somehow universal, the truth is it's a very Shia ideology. It doesn't fit well with these Sunni populations. Um, you've got lots of uh, problems between the regime and the Baluch in the East, but the Sunni versus Shia split is definitely one of them. In other places, you know, the Kurds are the largest uh, nation in the Middle East that does not have its own state. And, you know, what we've seen from the Kurds is a, uh, a desire for their own nation in Iran, in Iraq, in Turkey, in Syria, right? We've seen this across the board. And in Iran, it's worth noting that, you know, in the 1940s, right after World War II, there was a breakaway Kurdish Republic, and Kurds haven't forgotten any of this. And neither is the regime itself. They recognize, they remember that the Kurds have these aspirations. And at particular moments of stress, the regime will often go after these different Kurdish and, uh, and religious minority groups because they suspect them of disloyalty. And of course, that simply breeds the disloyalty. That simply reinforces to these different ethnic and religious minorities that they're not fully accepted by the powers that be, that they are never going to be fully integrated into their society and never given the same rewards that they aspire to. How much, so before you came on, I was talking to our producer, um, Adam, who's originally from Israel and we we're having a conversation about what to talk, talk to you about. And, um, and he was saying how, He's constantly asked why um, this isn't getting more traction in intellectual circles in the West. Where why why isn't the Iranian um, possible revolution, which would solve could solve a lot of problems, you know, um, why and it, it checks a lot of boxes for for causes in the West um, from various ideological camps. Why does it seem to be sort of an afterthought? Oh, God, Jenna, this is such a great question. We may need two or three podcasts to really go into this because there's so much here. I mean, first of all, 
there's a whole bunch of stuff in the United States that we need to think about, right? There is the, the history of the 1953 coup, which the United States did have a hand in. The United States was trying to overthrow the Mossadegh government. But of course, there's also enormous mythology built around the 1953 coup. The truth of the matter is that the coup was really an Iranian movement. Mossadegh was not a democratic uh, prime minister. Um, he had alienated most of the Iranian elite. Uh, CIA was definitely in there pitching. Uh, but at the end of the day, it was Iranians who built him, who brought him down, not the CIA. But nevertheless, that has gotten built up both by Americans and Iranians into the original sin mm-hmm. of the U.S.-Iranian relationship. And I think that there are a lot of Americans who find it very difficult to get past that and this kind of mea culpa for the United States having brought down this popular, but again, not democratic, uh, Iranian prime minister. Then on top of that, uh, you get the fact that, you know, in the last 15 years or so, uh, Iran has somehow uh, gotten infected with America's polarization, right? There's a period of time in the 1980s and 90s when Iran was a very bipartisan issue. In the United States, uh, both Americans, and, but sorry, both uh, Democrats and Republicans, um, pretty much all Americans saw the Iranians as a, a difficult, inimical regime, inimical because the Iranians kept defining themselves as our enemies. Right. You know, we should remember that most of the pretty much every single American president, with the exception of the second President Bush, tried to reach out to the Iranians and, and did some remarkable things to try for a rapprochement with the Iran regime. The Iranians rejected it every single time. Nevertheless, during the Obama administration, the Democrats kind of took up the Iranian cause. And I think part of this was dislike of some of our traditional allies in the Middle East, the Israelis, the Saudis, etc., uh, who, of course, were fighting with the Iranians. Part of it, again, is the kind of blame America first and the shame for America's actions. Right? But all of this has colored uh, the American perception of Iran, so that particular on the left, and let's remember most intellectuals tend to be on the left in the United States, um, have really had a great deal of difficulty recognizing the Iranian regime for what it is, which is a really nasty, unpleasant, unpopular dictatorship, which again, has defined itself as being anti-American because, as the supreme leader himself has said, he needs the American enemy. He needs the American enemy to legitimize his control over the country. All of this, you know, uh, is, is kind of getting into the gears of American politics and making it ridiculously difficult for American leaders and intellectuals and thinkers and foreign policy uh, uh, pundits to actually stand up and say, this regime is odious. Iran would be better without it. The Middle East would be better without it. The United States would be better without it. The world would be better without it. And its people, by and large, hate it. Right? And the United States ought to be trying to find ways to help the Iranian people achieve what they clearly want. The anti-Americanism thing, I remember in the lead up to the Iraq war, you know, Iranians talking about how I knew Iranians who said, you know, the anti-American thing in Iran is overstated. Maybe I, there's a selection bias there. But if you hate the regime, 
why is anti-Americanism still so useful for the regime? Is it that, I mean, is, is how widespread is, Amer- is anti-Americanism in Iran that allows you to say, well, I hate these people who are beating up my sister in the streets and, you know, and arrested my son, but at least they hate America. I mean, like that, that seems to have diminishing returns as a political pitch to me. Um, so like, yeah. why is it so central still? Yeah. Okay. So first of all, got to you know start with the usual caveat, which is we have no good uh, polling on Iranians, right? We we the regime present prevents us from getting good data on public opinion in Iran. That said, the anecdotal evidence I think is overwhelming that most Iranians don't hate the United States at all. There is a a small group of them who truly do hate them. These are the regime's ardent supporters. The regime seems to think that it is useful to them uh, to have this anti-Americanism. It's not at all clear that it buys them any degree of popularity. In fact, you know, what we've typically seen is that when the Iranian people get their way, when they're able to vote for a president who actually reflects what they want, whether it is Mohammad Khatami in the 1990s or Hassan Rouhani in the 2010s, when they get an Iranian president who seems to reflect what they actually want, he typically makes overtures to the United States. He typically tries to reach out to the U.S. and get that rapprochement, which again seems to suggest that, yes, the vast majority of the Iranian people uh, are not anti-American at all. In fact, they are, if anything, probably pro-American. In fact, there's, I think, I think it's a, a reasonable thing to say that uh, Iranians may be among the most pro-American of all of the folks uh, in the Middle East, certainly in the Muslim Middle East. I, mean, I have my reasons for thinking it would solve a lot of problems to get rid of this regime. I'm sure you have... You, your reasons for thinking that. Um, but let's put it this way. Let's say the regime goes, which would be nice. And there's obviously going to be some chaos. And um, But when the smoke clears, you've got a mildly authoritarian, but maybe moving in the right direction towards democracy type of government. Maybe not moving towards democracy, but certainly liberalizing wanting to get back into the good graces of the international community kind of thing. What actually happens with the nuclear program? Is it the, cause you talk to some people and they say that, look, this is about a national, this is an agenda in, inherent to the national identity that they want to be a major power, you know, and that even if you change the regime, you wouldn't change sort of like a George Kennan argument about, you know, Russia versus the Soviet union, the inherent interests of the, of the nation remain the same. Um, doesn't mean they become less of a threat, which would be great, <laughs> uh, or, you know, would not be less. But um, what do you think happens in the nuclear program if, if you could actually get rid of the regime? So, again, the truth is we don't know, John. And, you know, people make arguments about this kind of stuff all the time, and then history proves them wrong. Right, and can prove them wrong in every direction. Uh, just the history of nuclear proliferation, right? I mean, John Kennedy famously said when he was president that he expected that in 25 years there'd be 25 countries with nuclear weapons. Uh, that's not the case, right? You know, to this day, uh, I believe that the number with nuclear weapons is still nine. Right? And you can think of any number of countries that set out down the road to acquire nuclear weapons and never finished the march. Uh, you know, 
when you and I were much, much younger, uh, Egypt was, you know, it was axiomatic that Egypt was going to acquire nuclear weapons, yeah. right? They had a strategic need for them. They had a big program going. They never get there, right? And we've seen other countries that have undergone major regime changes, South Africa, the former Soviet republics, you know, now Ukraine, Belarus, and, uh, and Kazakhstan, right? All of these countries gave up nuclear weapons. And of course, there were plenty of people at the time saying, oh, they'll never give up nuclear weapons. It'd be stupid for them to do so. They have interest to do so. And they did it. Right. Now, that's also no guarantee that a new Iranian regime would uh, surrender its nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, on the other side of it, I think this is what you're referring to. You know, there, there are reasons why you could imagine the Iranians, any Iranian regime wanting to keep them. Iran is an important country in the Middle East. Iranians believe themselves to be extremely important players, not just in the Middle East, but on the global stage, right? They see themselves as the lineal descendants of one of history's greatest powers. Um, they do believe that they are threatened by other countries. I mean, just, you know, look at their neighborhood, depending on who the regime is. You know, they live not far from uh uh, Russia. They live not far from China. They live not far from India. Pakistan has nuclear weapons on its borders. Uh, they've had problematic relations, I'm being kind here, with Iraq, uh, with the Israelis, right? Um, there are reasons why any Iranian regime might want a nuclear weapon. I, I think that, first of all, this is a social experiment I'd like to run, mm -hmm. right? right? The current regime, you know, has... It, it, has an interest in the weapons. Certainly the hardliners very much want them. It has been very difficult to prevent them from acquiring nuclear weapons. Um, I'm not convinced we will ultimately be able to do so. So I'd love to try the alternative approach. And then I think that it becomes incumbent upon the United States and other countries to then make it in Iran's interest, in the interest of that right. new Iranian regime to give up the weapons, to have enough carrots and sticks, enough inducements, positive and negative, to make sure that they decide, yeah, it'd be better for us not to have this nuclear program than to have it. Okay, so one, one thing you didn't say, and we're going to get off Iran in a second, because some of the things I want to ask you about, but one of the things you didn't say in the, in the explanation, the partial explanation for why this isn't getting the traction in the West that I think we both think it should, um, was that... It seems to me that part of the problem is you had the you had a similar moment under Obama and we did nothing. And there is this feeling, I think, among a lot of Democrats that even though I think Obama has admitted, has acknowledged that he made mistakes back then, um, that would be kind of admitting, oh, we screwed this up the last time. Um, and also you have this this outbreak of viral idiocy on big chunks of the right right now about, you know, isolationism and, and, and various things. Um, but let's say you could convince the Biden administration to actually do something that it's not doing now. What are like the one, two or three things that if you wanted these protests to become a successful revolution rather than a failed rebellion, what would we do that we aren't doing? So this is a great question, Jonah, and the problem is it's not clear what exactly the answer is, right? So uh, first, you know, there are things that may be going, you know, my first answer to your question is I'd like the United States to be much more active in the cyber realm, right? But I can't tell you that we're not already. I hope we are. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that you're absolutely right that the the Biden folks and let's remember, most of the Biden people were members of Obama's team. Right. And whatever they say in public, yes, in private, I think it's very clear they know that they screwed up in 2009. In 2009, they made a very explicit decision to do nothing for far too long, hoping that they were going to get a nuclear deal with Iran, which, of course, never happened. Um, and they wind, wound up uh, not voicing any kind of support and doing far too little on behalf of the protesters in 2009 uh, in pursuit of this ridiculous nuclear deal, which clearly was never going to happen at that moment in time. So they've learned that lesson, and they are certainly doing things, right? They're imposing sanctions on different groups, and they're talking about doing things in the cyber world. We just don't know if they are or not. But that's my hope. You know, something that we saw and heard from the Iranians both in 2009 and ever since is, look, we need cyber to communicate. And the regime needs cyber to communicate. And the more that you can help us to communicate and the more that you can hinder the regime from communicating, the more that you will meaningfully help us. Right. And so that's the first thing that comes to mind. I'll also say that I think that's a useful area because, you know, going back to the points that you and I were talking about just a few minutes ago, the United States is still a little bit of a third rail for Iran. Well, again, I will stand by the comment that I made that I think that Iran is one of the most pro-American populations in the entire Middle East because of this history, in particular because of 1953 and the hostage crisis. There certainly are Iranians who are sensitive about American interference in their affairs. You get a lot of Iranian protesters, a lot of Iranian oppositionists who will say, you know, we like the United States to voice their support for us, but we don't want the Americans to do much more than that. And you'll get others who say, no, we want you to do everything you can. It's hard to know, right? And this is always one of the problems being on the outside, being the United States of America, seeing one of these revolutions kind of starting to build up steam is that, you know, people always have very, very strong views about us, sometimes negative, sometimes positive, and it can be difficult to really know exactly where where the, where right lies. So I come away from that saying, first, the more that we can do in the cyber world, which tends to be very below the radar, almost literally, that's a great thing. Beyond that, I think it's critically important. This is one of these moments where the United States has to stand up and very loudly espouse its own values. The Iranian people are demanding change. The Iranian people are making it clear they do not want to live under this kind of dictatorship. Who are we, the United States of America, who are we as Americans not to support them? Who are we not to say this is exactly what we want to see everywhere in the world? It's what we believe in. It is who we are in the world. And, you know, again, it's something you and I have spoken about a number of times. It is one of the sources of our strength, right? It's something that people all over the world respect, even love about the United States of America. Um, you know, you, you and I go around the world. We talk to people. People often hate American policy, but they love American values, This is one of those critical moments when the United States has to stand up for its own values, remind people of its values, and remain true to those values. All of that, I think, in this moment will be invaluable. And then beyond that, we have to listen, right? We are going to get various Iranian opposition groups coming to us and saying, we'd like this kind of help. We, you know, could you help us do this? 
that's a tough process. Again, having worked for a an organization with just three letters, you know, the first people who are going to come to you are going to be the Revolutionary Guards. Right. And they're going to come to you in the guise of protesters saying, we need this, we need that, help us do this, help us do that. Right. And in some cases, it's just to burn us and make us gun shy of actually speaking to real oppositionists. In other cases, it's because they're hoping they can get into our system by doing it, or they're hoping that we will stupidly give them money, give them weapons, give them something which they can then use against their own protesters. So none of this is easy, but we do want to listen and hear what the Iranians are saying and be looking for things that we can do that clearly will be of benefit to the protesters, clearly won't be of benefit to the regime. But it's all very, very tough when you're on the outside, when the United States of the America, and you've had this kind of a difficult relationship with Iran for so long. So uh, let's move on to Saudi Arabia. One, and one of the, I, I thought the killing of the journal, you know, Khashoggi was outrageous and terrible and deserved to be condemned. And I think we might have talked about this before, but I, I, as I say, I, as much as I totally d- would defend the Washington Post for being monomaniacally obsessed about this one issue, because it was their columnist. I mean, like, like you, if someone, if, if they butchered someone from the dispatch, I would be a huge pain in the ass about it. <laughs> and I don't want to be, you know, I, I'm not trying to make light of it, but it's just a fact. I mean, I get it, but that's not foreign policy. And um, it seems to me that, you know, I, I keep meaning to go try to look this up. I have to think that Kamal Ataturk did some terrible things, but he also modernized Turkey. And I, I get the sense that for all of Saudi Arabia's problems, and I think it's a crappy country and I don't want to be too tightly wound up with it, its trajectory is better than what you, at least what I would have predicted, say, in 2007, right? Um, And um, so am I wrong? Where do you you see Saudi Arabia heading these days? And what is your explanation for them giving Biden the high hat? Um, when it came to the oil production stuff? Sure. These are great questions. And let me try to take them in turn, because I think you posed them kind of in the right order. Um, so first, where's Saudi Arabia headed? Um, you know, I'll start by saying that I've been calling for reform in Saudi Arabia for over 25 years. You know, when I was in the U.S. government, um, you know, at some point I woke up one morning and realized, you know, boy, our allies among the Arab states very problematic countries, um, probably not long for this world if they continue to try to function in the same old-fashioned dictatorial, rely on the oil way that they have, that that just wasn't going to work well into the 21st century. So I've been demanding reform for the longest time. Far be it from me to, you know, therefore dismiss a Saudi ruler, I'm just going to call him ruler for the moment, mm-hmm. who genuinely wants to reform Saudi Arabia, right? And we do need to start there. Um, Mohammed bin Salman, for all his faults, and he's got lots of them, um, he is genuinely committed to reforming Saudi Arabia. And for that reason, he has proven actually quite popular with huge numbers of Saudis. And he is doing things. Mm-hmm. And as Americans, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that he is genuinely doing things. Um, and again, some of the things that he's doing make no sense. Some of the things he's doing are bad. Some things he's doing are really good. A lot of stuff that he's doing, you know, never, never show up on the American radar. But he is absolutely trying to change Saudi Arabia 
That is really important, really good, exactly what we as Americans want for both strategic and moral reasons. Um, it is worth noting that you know his whole theory is that he is going to transform the kingdom economically and socially because he's trying to avoid any political change, right? You know, this is, the Saudis used to talk about this, this is their China model, right? Mm. The idea is that if they can make the country rich and if they can make the people, uh, you know, free and uh, free-ish, more modern, able to kind of enjoy their lives more, they won't care about the politics and they'll simply allow the royal family to keep ruling, which of course is Mohammed bin Salman's goal. So we should keep that in mind too. But yes, there is absolutely change in Saudi Arabia. From the Saudi perspective, much of it is good, although there's nothing perfect and they're running into problems there as well that if you want to, we can talk about. All that, again, is in America's interests in a whole variety of different ways. That said, you know, the same point that I was making a, a few minutes ago seems that the reverse seems to be true with Saudi Arabia, that at some point in time, Saudi Arabia got caught in the gears of American political polarization. Mm -hmm. Just as the Democrats adopted Iran, largely mm. under the Obama administration for reasons that I've never really understood other than kind of the, you know, the simplistic, but I think that it's not untrue, uh, blame America first kind of thing that Obama often espoused. Um, you know, the Saudis, because they were our allies, uh, were therefore bad, right? Along with a lot of other allies um, who came under, you know, very, very harsh criticism that was never directed in the same way against our enemies, right? Our enemies got a pass. Our allies got put under the microscope. And, you know, as you're pointing out, let's start by saying, again, to be kind, Saudi Arabia is just a very different country, a very different society from the United States of America. Certainly, there are a lot of things about Saudi Arabia that Americans wouldn't like. And then I would go so far as to say that a lot of Saudis don't necessarily like either. Again, that's why a lot of the stuff that Mohammed bin Salman is doing is actually popular with many different Saudis. But Saudi Arabia got caught on the wrong side of the Iran-Saudi Arabia divide, where Democrats adopted the uh, Iranians, and Republicans got stuck with the Saudis. And listen, this happened long before the Khashoggi murder. Um, you know, this is something that was going on largely as a result of uh, the Obama administration's pursuit of the JCPOA, where, you know, a lot of American allies in the region, starting with the Israelis and the Saudis, uh, complained bitterly about the JCPOA, didn't want it, opposed it, uh, opposed it in often, you know, really foolish and counterproductive ways that got the backs of the Obama administration up. And I think that that helped push them to this kind of position of, you know, well, the Iranians are, are you know, not so bad. Maybe they're even good, right? They're better than our allies, Right. And this seems to be the, the position that the Democrats are taking. Then you get the Khashoggi killing on top of that. Right. Which, you know, my God, was horrific and brutal and, you know, supercharged that sentiment. And, you know, uh, especially the more moderate Republicans somehow got stuck defending Saudi Arabia. Right? Yeah. And it was uh, in some ways easy because there are the longstanding connections to the oil companies that, you know, is longstanding in the Republican Party. But more important than that, you just had a lot of moderate Republican internationalists uh, who found themselves saying, you know, hey, wait a second. Um, the Saudis may not be perfect, 
but uh, that the relationship has stood us in really good stead for decades. We still need it. We can't afford to alienate the Saudis. Um, and we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And of course, in the uh, supercharged, polarized environment, you know, that became a, you know, more or less excusing Mohammed bin Salman, excusing the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, right? Which brings us kind of up to the present day. And obviously, I'm skipping over a lot, but in broad brush strokes, it kind of brings us up to the, to the current day. And let's remember, I want to start on the Saudi side, because, of course, Americans, we remember our own history, or at least we remember what happened to us, not what we did to other people. So the relationship with the Saudis dating back to 1945 was they sell us oil at reasonable prices and keep the oil market stable, and in return, we defend them. And, of course, this gets codified under President Carter in 1980 as the Carter Doctrine, right, that we will oppose with force anyone trying to interfere with Persian Gulf oil exports. Well, you may remember that in 2019, under President Trump, the Iranians started attacking Saudi oil exports, right? Attacking uh, Saudi and and UAE uh, tankers in the Gulf, and then mounting this massive drone strike on the enormous Abqaiq facility, which is two-thirds of Saudi oil goes through it. It's the beating heart of the Western economy. And the U.S. did nothing, nothing. And this was shocking beyond words for the Saudi Arabians. This for them was the United States taking 70 years of history, 75 years, and tearing it up and throwing it away. And they've never seen the U.S. really come back from that. We've provided some defensive support, but we've never gone back to the Carter Doctrine. And all through the last, even under the the Biden administration, you know, Biden came in and said, okay, I get it. I'm not Trump. I'm not Obama. I understand the importance. I'm an old guy. I remember the old relationship. I think it was good. You saw I want to go back to that. The Saudi feeling was we love the words, but we're not seeing any actions, right? We're not seeing you re-engaging. We're not seeing you push back on the Iranians who, you know, are lobbing ballistic missiles and drones and cruise missiles into Saudi Arabia on a regular, on a weekly basis, right? Most Americans aren't even aware of that. And of course, the uh, president makes the remarks on the campaign trail that he's going to treat Saudi Arabia as a pariah and initially won't take the calls from the crown prince. And finally, when the oil price of oil is going through the roof, finally he realizes, you know what, I better go over there. I better mend fences. And he has a fist bump with the (laughs) crown prince, right? But again, the conversations there really don't amount to very much. And from the Saudi perspective, this is Biden finally, finally taking a half step back in their direction, right? And, you know, what do we expect that, you know, they take a half, the Americans take a half step and the Saudis are going to, you know, suddenly open the floodgates on the oil? The Saudi perspective was, it's nice that you're doing a little for us, but that's all you're doing. You're doing a little for us. Don't expect much more than that. Now, the Saudis also miscalculated, right? I mean, you know, again, they handled this so badly. Um, It would have been so easy to just do nothing at the OPEC Plus meeting, wait until after the midterm election, and they knew that that's what Biden was concerned about, and then after the midterm election, announce the increase in oil prices. So it wouldn't have had any impact on the election. It's also worth noting that from the Saudi perspective, yeah, they announced 2 million barrels. Everybody knows it's not going to be 2 million barrels. There'll be cheating. There'll be mismanagement. It won't amount. It'll be probably about 800,000 barrels per day actually on the market. It won't move the price that much. 
And beyond that, the Saudis have other issues out there, right? Again, as I said, the Saudis are looking at the U.S. and saying, you're distancing yourself from the Middle East and you're distancing yourself from us. We're not sure we can count on you in the future, right? At the same time, we do have to worry about OPEC and the wider group of oil-producing countries. These are critical to us. Most Americans totally unaware that in 2020, the Saudis went to war with the Russians over oil prices, and they crushed the Russians. It was very painful, very costly for them, but they crushed the Russians, and they brought the Russians back into the fold, forced the Russians to work within the, the OPEC Plus framework. And the Saudi perspective was, obviously, the Ukraine war is putting tremendous pressure on Russia to get oil prices up. We don't want to lose Russia. We don't want to have another war with Russia over oil prices. So we'll give a little bit to the Russians, right, to make them feel a little bit better, but to keep them inside the tent. And again, they completely misread the United States. They misread, in particular, the American press and the American Congress. The Saudi perspective on this was the Biden administration would be stupid to make a big stink about this before the election. It won't have that much impact on oil prices. If they were smart, they would say nothing, right? And just let this pass. No one will notice it. But the American press, which has become, as you pointed out, very anti-Saudi, they went nuts with it. Right? I think to some extent, they even forced the hand of the Biden administration, which didn't like this, but I think would have been very happy to just kind of let this go under the radar screen, not call attention to it before the midterm elections. But the press went nuts, and that forced the Biden administration to say something. And of course, the Saudi reaction was a very unhelpful, well, you know, you're stupid to be saying anything about it. You know, you knew what we were doing. You knew we were going to do it. We told you we were going to do it. So you should have just said nothing. And again, this kind of foolishness on both sides is making things worse. But the real big issues are the ones that I was talking about beforehand. This change in America's perspective on the Middle East and our security relationship with Saudi Arabia, the fact that the Saudis are now thinking, do we have to find new security partners because we can't rely on the Americans? And at the end of the day, this, uh, this polarization that uh, the polarization of American politics that is now caught up with the Saudi relationship as well as the Iranian relationship. Yeah, I mean, the the fact that you've got one party that for whatever reason is declaring war on fossil fuels complicates things as well, but we don't get deep in the weeds on that. Last question, because I know I promised I'd get you out quickly. Um, how does, I mean, other than food prices in Egypt and 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 starvation in Ethiopia, um, how does the Ukraine war affect Middle East considerations? I mean, is it is it? It's been shocking to me how many countries are actually not getting Ukraine's side, even rhetorically. Um, obviously, Syria, which is a vassal state to Russia, is not going to do anything other than be Syria. Iran is selling these. Um, I, I, my under, my understanding is that the preferred term for these things is loitering munitions. Uh, you're not supposed to call them drones. Uh, but so like how much, how much is at stake with the, how much of the, is at stake in the Middle East with the outcome in Ukraine? Or are they just completely independent phenomena? Ooh, great question. Um, let me see if I can give it to you in a bit of a nutshell. So as you and I've already been talking about, right, the Middle East is hideously complex, Especially these, I mean, it's always been complicated, but it just gets worse and worse. And by the way, this is not a good sign, right? This is a really, really bad sign. The more complicated a place like the Middle East gets, 
the more conflict there is, the more conflict there is likely to be. So this is a big red flag. And, you know, for me, it's very troubling that people just want to ignore the Middle East, right? I know, I get why people want to ignore the Middle East. It is, you know, infuriating. The problem is you can't ignore it, right? It's not, as I always say, it's not Las Vegas. What happens there doesn't stay there, right? It is pulled every administration that tried to, to forget about it back in. And that's true for other countries around the world. So the Middle East has all of these different issues. And then all of a sudden comes the Ukraine war, right? And what's happening is the Ukraine war is now being injected into all of the different complexities of the Middle East and kind of scrambling all of these different things. So just as a, a couple of examples, as I said, there are a lot of American allies, starting with the Saudis, but then the UAE, even the Israelis, the Jordanians, the Egyptians, all of whom have relied on America as their great power backer for decades, who now see under three American presidents, the United States disengaging from the region. And they're now all asking themselves the question of, you know, okay, what are we going to do in the future, right? How do we handle our security in the future? And they're looking at all kinds of different answers. For some countries like Israel and the UAE, to a certain extent, it's we have to strengthen ourselves. For countries like Saudi Arabia and Qatar and, and Kuwait, they're asking questions like, well, you know, Could we find another great power backer? Maybe the Chinese, maybe the Russians, maybe the Israelis. Well, the Ukraine war suddenly walks in and says, all right, you can't have both the Americans and the Russians. You can't have a little of America and a little of Russia. You're going to have to choose one or the other. That's a complicating factor. You've got the oil prices, right? Again, uh, before the Ukraine war, oil prices were rising. The Middle East was generally happy with them. They were fairly high, but they weren't rising too high. Right now, because of the cutoff of oil from the Soviet, from Russia, um, the the inevitable mistake there, um, (laughs) you know, this is now having a dramatic impact on oil production all over the world, on our oil prices, and it's forcing the Middle East to make decisions that they don't necessarily want to make because you've got some countries in the Middle East who'd like the price of oil to remain you know, high but stable, others who want it to go as high as possible, like the Iranians, like the Iraqis for that matter. right? And so Ukraine is causing all kinds of splits and adding all kinds of new wrinkles to already unbelievably complex problems and pulling countries and pushing countries in directions that they never wanted to go to and that they were already having difficulty just kind of steering a straight line. So, no, Ukraine has not been a minor thing. It's just that it's playing out in a hundred or a thousand different little ways, not Mm. one big way, the way the United States wants to see it. All right, Ken Pollock, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, Really appreciate it. Um, And uh, I hope to have you back for a longer uh, session uh, sooner rather or later. I look forward to it, Jonah. My conversations with you, your podcast is always, you know, it's the most interesting one out there. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. Okay, so Ken has left the studio, or whatever we call it these days, and... um, uh, again, apologies for the shorter podcast than normal, though I'm sure I'm going to get an email from some people saying they like it shorter because um, every time I apologize for something, I hear from people saying that that's the thing that they liked. And every time I say I like something, they say that's the thing they didn't like. So uh, such is the nature of the beast. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think if there's something else I'm supposed to be telling you, but I can't remember what it is. Um, so... Uh, 
Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.